we're in our journey through John, right? And uh, as I was preparing for this message, in fact, the word preparation is a big word for today. I came across this uh, quote from Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers of our nation. And he said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And of course, when we look at that, it, it's so true and, and, and so, in so many aspects of our life. Um, how many know when you're going to have a test? I, I think back to when we first moved here, my wife did not have a driver's license. And she wanted to learn uh, how to drive. Uh, and so she had to, of course, prepare to take the written test, right? So there's all this studying in the book on how to take the written test. And thankfully, she passed that. But you just can't get behind the wheel and say, okay, I'm ready to drive to take my driver's test. You got to practice. You got to prepare for that test. Uh, and for the sake of our marriage, I did not teach her how to drive. <laughs> I got her to a driving uh, school and uh, uh, she was able to uh, learn. And thankfully, she passed. Uh, she didn't run over too many pedestrians. I think they limited it to one. And the guy said, okay, you only hit one person, so you, you pass. Uh, and, uh, but see, preparation is necessary for success. And when we don't prepare, we're actually preparing to fail. I thought about this message. It, uh, God gave me this word actually last Sunday, the thought anyway of what I was going to speak on. But how many know the, the week has to be in preparing Right? That's why the Bible, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, study to show yourself approved. Timothy, you're anointed, God has called you, but you still have to prepare. You still have to study. And it would be horrific of, on my part, and it would be a terrible sermon if I never prepared. If I just came up here and said, well, I'm just going to trust God that whatever comes out of my, my, my mouth is going to bless the people. That would be poor preparation and it wouldn't be surprising if I failed. Uh, so this adage from Benjamin Franklin really focuses on preparing really for the future, right? My, my wife had to prepare for the eventuality of taking the test, uh, both the written and the physical. Uh, we have to prepare for what we're going to do or what we're going to experience. And nowhere is preparing for the future more important, more critical than preparing for our spiritual future. So as we journey through John, we come up to chapter 14. So I'm just going to read the first six verses of chapter 14. Follow along as I read verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, now let's, let's, as we've just read this, let's take a step back so that we get a full picture of what's going on. Jesus is with his disciples uh, is at what many believe is the last supper, if you will, uh, right before he knew he was going to get arrested. He had given them the command to love one another, which we talked about last week. But then he begins to tell them that he was about to leave and where he was going, they could not follow now. So they began to be troubled because the Lord is telling them now, I, in a little while, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be taken from you. I'm going to be leaving, and you can't follow. And this word trouble in the Greek means that they were agitated. The disciples felt like, why, why can't we follow you? We've been following you for approximately three years now. Uh, we, we know that you're the Messiah. And Peter, obviously, I, I, I'll never leave you. I, come, I'm never going to deny you. I, I, I want to follow you wherever you're going. And so to calm their hearts down, their troubled hearts, Jesus now reveals to them why he was leaving them, that he was going to prepare a place for them in the Father's house, which is, means heaven. And as I stated before, the Gospel of John is the Gospel of Declaration in that it's the gospel that records more of Jesus declaring who he is than any of the other three gospels. And here, once again, we come up to a, a, another declaration. In fact, I, it's a threefold declaration, if you will, where Jesus, speaking about himself, said, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life. And then he adds such a critical statement no one, come on, say no one with me this morning. No one comes to the Father except through me. We we're talking this morning about preparing for the future. And obviously when we're talking about the future, we're not talking about preparing for uh, tomorrow's dinner or the job. We're talking about preparing for that future uh, in that time where we will be in the Father's house, Lord willing. And so uh, just a few thoughts before I actually, I want to share a couple of thoughts about what we need to do in order to prepare spiritually for our future. But before I get there, just a, a, an observation, if you will, uh, two observations I also want to make, and that is this. Sometimes the Lord does things that we do not understand. In other words, Jesus told them, you only are going to have me in a little while, and then where I'm going, you can't follow. They did not understand his comments, what he was saying. Uh, and, and in fact, Thomas saying, you're telling us we know the, the, where you're going, and we know the way. What, what's going on with that? We don't understand anything of what's going down. And I realize that the longer you walk with the Lord, sometimes the more confused you are. Yeah. Meaning... There's expectations that you have. Remember, they were with the Lord for approximately three years every single day. They got to know him intimately. 
They know now that he's the Messiah. And now, out of the blue, he's telling them, in a little while, I'm going to be leaving, and where I'm going, you can't follow. And they just can't get that. And so it led them to be troubled. And oftentimes, we get troubled because there are things that unfold in our life that God begins to move that we don't often understand what God is after, what God is doing. When those happen to me, I always reflect back to one of my favorite verses in the Bible that reminds me of who God is and my place in my relationship with him. It's found in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, where God says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. We all need to be reminded this morning that God doesn't think the way we think. Right? God, I mean, we, we all have a preconceived idea of how this Christian life should unfold. And most of us, if we're honest, the way we think God should act is I'm serving God. If I'm faithful, then God needs to be faithful to me. And what that process is in my mind, faithful to me means God is always going to watch over me and protect me. No evil is ever going to come my way. I'm never going to be sick. I'm never going to be without I'm never going to have hardship or difficulties. I'm going to live a blessed life. If we're all honest here this morning, if those of you that are watching are honest, that's how you think the Christian life should unfold. And so when God begins to do something that doesn't follow that particular pattern that we think it should follow, now we get confused. We don't understand. I don't understand why my loved one is sick. I don't understand why I lost that job that you gave me, God. I don't understand why this is happening, God. I, I, I thought that you would watch over me. I thought that you would protect me. I don't understand. But God reminds us, we may not always understand what God is doing, but we need to trust him because his ways are not our ways. But now, Here's one thing that we can settle on. No matter what transpires in your life and my life, and by the way, when I say that, I'm assuming that what's transpiring is not a result of our disobedience. Right there, you realize that there are consequences sometimes that we deal with that is a direct result of us disobeying God, right? Uh, Nobody wants to say amen to that. Okay, I, I get that. Well, I'll say amen to that. Amen, pastor. That was good. Okay, thank you. But assuming that we're living righteously before the Lord and doing the very best that we can to honor him with our life, here's one thing that I do want to encourage you with. Everything the Lord does now is preparation for the future. Everything that transpires in our lives is a preparation for the future. Now, when again, when I say the future, I do not mean this life. I'm talking about the next. In other words, what God is doing in our lives is he's orchestrating our life in such a way so that it prepares us for the day that we go home to be with him forever and ever. 
The preparation that's taking place in your life and my life is to conform us to the image Jesus Christ to mold us into that place to ensure that you and I have no issue, no problem when that day comes and the great trumpet sounds and we go to be with the Lord forever and ever. So everything that God does in this life is in preparation for the next life, for the Father's house. And preparing for the future if that's God's mindset, that God isn't concerned. If I, I want to say this carefully so that you don't misunderstand me. Because we want to believe that everything that transpires in our life here on this earth, that God is going to somehow turn it for the good. Because that's what the scripture says. But, again, the mindset is, he works all things out for the good. That means if I got fired today, God's going to get me a better job tomorrow. That's good, isn't it? In other words, we translate good as something material here in this life. But what if God say, I'm firing you today because the good that's going to come out is you're going to be closer to me. And I'm going to provide for you everything that you need, but you won't find a job. How many would say that that's good then? Oh, you say good now. Remember, God records all these amens. <laughs> God said, I heard that. God said, I heard that. Let's see if that's true. All right, so, so the good means that God is using this, the physical life, to prepare us for the spiritual life. And so... What we need to recognize, and listen, again, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God cannot and will not provide for us physically. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God's focus is not for you and I to have a blessed life here on this earth. His focus, his mindset is everything I do is in preparation for the Father's house so that there'll be a smooth transition for you into the Father's house. Are you following me so far? Okay. So now, I would submit to you, if that's God's mindset, that everything that God does in my life and in your life is to prepare us for the future, then ought that to be our mindset as well? Should that not be what you and I are thinking about? Should that not be our focus, that everything that I do in this life should be in preparation for my future. And so in thinking along those lines, I would submit to you that there are two simple components to preparing for the future. They're laid out in our scriptures here. Number one, listen, it's embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, I know that that sounds simple, and most of us here in this room and most of you watching have probably made that step but it's important that we understand that that's the first step uh, because Jesus, remember, declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. And when he made this statement, he was talking about to the, going to the Father's house. So in other words, Jesus was saying, I want to make sure 
you disciples understand, and anyone who would uh, subsequently read God's word would understand that no one, come on, say no one with me, no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why I think that that's so important is because we live in an age of political correctness. We live at a time where our country is a country of inclusion. And what, what, by, by, what I mean by all those statements is simply this, that sadly, many believers, many children of God, many Christians, many who are born again, I'm using all the white words so you understand who I'm talking about, have embraced this erroneous philosophy that there are many paths to God. Because we, we want to be politically correct. We don't want to ruffle feathers. We, we live in a country where we're, we're inclusion, uh, a, a country of inclusion, which means, hey, we embrace all religions, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so we can't be so dogmatic. There are many paths to God. But Jesus declared otherwise. It's important that we understand that. Now, we're not talking about that we should be communicating with arrogance, but we should be communicating what the Lord declared, that Jesus said, I am the way. The word way there can also be translated the road. So Jesus is saying, I'm the way. In other words, I'm the road. I'm the path. No one comes to the Father except through me. They are not many roads to the Father. There's only one. And it's important that we stress that because religion, whatever religion you want to name, none of them are the path to God. There, you, you can't, you, listen, Islam is not the path to the Father. Catholicism is not the path to the Father. Listen, Christianity is not the path to the Father. And by that I mean and put all the religions into one. Because people think that, well, because I'm Pentecostal, you know, I got the ticket. Pentecostalism is not the ticket to the Father. There is no religion that's the ticket to the Father. Remember, Jesus was saying this to his disciples, and he was always constantly referring also to, to the Jewish leaders that, that they were constantly looking at their religion as the key to the Father. Personal morality is not the way. Think. I, I'm good, you know, I don't do this, I don't do that, I'm a good person, so I believe God's going to let me enter into heaven. Personal morality is not the road to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father's house. He's the only road that all sinners must travel on to gain entrance to the Father's house. Now, we also live in a time where many believe truth is what you think it is, what you believe it to be. When you look at surveys that are being done, even among 
those who profess to be Christians, you will find a vast array of truth. We live in such a time where people are just like Pilate was. Pilate looked at Jesus and said, what is truth? In other words, truth is what you want it to be. And there are many of us who are not looking to the word of God and, and trusting, well, I believe that this is right before God. Or I believe that that's right before God. And so what we wind up happening is we wind up saying, this is the truth, that isn't the truth. And this one says, no, that's not the truth, this is the truth. And so we live in this time where truth is whatever you believe it to be. But Jesus declared, I am the truth. In fact, in the conversation with Pilate in John uh, chapter uh, 18, verse 37, Jesus said, told Pilate, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then we find that Jesus not only is the way, but he is the truth. You cannot receive truth apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, if you search the scriptures, the scriptures will point you to Jesus. See, because, well, the scriptures are the truth. Granted, they are, but they're the truth because they point you to Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Jesus said, not only am I uh, the way, the truth, but I'm also the life. In other words, there is no true living spiritually apart from Jesus. In a conversation that he had with the religious leaders in John chapter 5 and verse uh, 39, Jesus said this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, what does that mean? I, I got to touch on this for a moment. Remember, Jesus is talking to religious scholars who spent their time studying the scriptures. And Jesus declared, the scriptures that you study tell you about me. But yet you won't come to me to have life. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, you think that this has life, but it does not have life. You have to come to me to get life. Now, why is that important? Again, let me just stay within the fabric of the church. There are Christians who think Bible studies are the way to, to grow spiritually. And they're not. Because you have Bible studies and never go to Jesus. You can have Bible studies and live like the devil. You can come to church faithfully and listen to sermon after sermon. You can go home now and watch every sermon available. And Lord knows that there are a gazillion of them now online because everybody's online. But watching all those sermons won't change your life. They won't give you life. See, Bible study in and of themselves don't give you life. Is Bible study good? Yes. But it's good under only one condition. Will you go to Jesus? Does it bring you to Jesus? Because if it doesn't bring you to Jesus, now all you've got is a lot of head knowledge. 
It's important, just like here, you're listening to God's word and, 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 and listening to the word being preached. Is it good? Yes. But only if in the end you go to Jesus with it and ask the Lord, what I have just heard, I want it to become part of my life. Why? Because only Jesus can take the written word, the spoken word, and transform it into the living word. And only the living word can transform our hearts and our lives. Would you say amen to that? So Jesus is saying, the spiritual, as it may seem, the religious doesn't give you life. Nor does the material possession give us life, right? You can have everything that you would possibly want or need in this life, but it won't give you life. You can still be empty inside. See, we were created by God for God. And only the Spirit of the Lord can bring life. Only the Spirit of the Lord can fill the emptiness that we are all born with in our soul. Now, here's the second component. The first component is embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. And again, I think most of us have done that. Now, in order to prepare for the future, here's the second component that I think sometimes as Christians we miss out on and we don't focus on, and that's measuring today's activity by tomorrow's hope. And by that I mean simply this. It's, it's how will the way that I live today prepare me for my spiritual future? How Will the, day, the way that I live today prepare me for my spiritual future? I want to read to you from the book of uh, Hebrews in chapter 11. It's talking about Moses, the man of God, beginning in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Here it comes. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. So Moses now listed among the saints of great faith, because chapter 11 is, the, is considered uh, the, 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 the chapter about faith. And listen, all the wonderful people that lived in the great, great faith that they had. Notice that Moses didn't give in to fleeting pleasures of sin and or the treasures of Egypt, which Egypt in our Bible always is symbolic for this world and the system and all that it has to offer. So Moses could have had all of that the world had to offer. He could have had all of the pleasures, but the Bible says he rejected them all because he was looking ahead to his reward. When we are not fixed on, on preparing for the future, we will be living for today. And by that I mean, very simply, I want to enjoy myself today. I'm not concerned about tomorrow. I just want to live for today. 
And what that translates simply is, I want to enjoy this life to its fullest today. Now, again, I want to make sure you, that you understand what I'm stressing. I'm not stressing that uh, enjoying this day, going out and enjoying the, the, the good weather is sin. Don't get me wrong with that. I'm simply stressing that there are times where our focus is on the full enjoyment of this life at the expense of our spiritual life. You see what I'm talking about? Where, where we have, uh, we want to enjoy everything that this world has to offer, and we are so concerned about getting all that we can in this life that we're not preparing for the next. We're not preparing for the future. And remember Benjamin Franklin's adage, right? If we are not preparing for the future to succeed, then we actually are preparing to fail. In contrast, so Moses said, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to give into that. Why? Because my focus is on my reward. I don't want to miss out on my reward. So I want to make sure that I govern my life accordingly because I don't want to miss out on this, what I have coming. In contrast, if you read in Genesis chapter 25, when you go home, you will find the account there of a man named Esau. Esau and Jacob were brothers. Esau was a hunter. Esau had gone out to hunt one day, but he didn't catch anything. Uh, Esau was the firstborn, and as the firstborn, he had the right of the firstborn, which means that in the day that his father passed away, he would get a double portion of the inheritance. That was the right of the firstborn. And so he comes back, and he's famished, Jacob has been making a bean stew. So his brother Esau said, hey, could you give me some of that? I'm starving. I'm going to die here. And Jacob says, you want some of my stew? Then give me your birthright. If you give me your birthright, you can have some of my stew. And Esau said, what good is my birthright, my future, if I died today? So you can have it. He sold his future for a bowl of beans. There are times, as God's people, we sell out our future for what can be translated as a bowl of beans. At the moment, it satisfies, but you and I both know you'll get hungry again. You see where I'm going with that? Yeah. Paul, later on, many years later, hundreds of years later, in Philippians records something so strong that sometimes Christians like to pass over it because it doesn't sit well in their heart. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul said this, For as I have told you before, and now tell you again with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is the future. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. So in other words, here the Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, is talking about Christians. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about the people of God. He said, I'm saying this with tears that unfortunately many who have professed Christ as their Savior are living as actual enemies of the cross of Christ. Because they are living for here and now. They're their God is their stomach. In other words, what Paul is saying, whatever they're craving, they're giving into that craving. They're following and pursuing that craving. And when we sacrifice our spiritual future for the pleasures of today, we actually live as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there was specific language that Paul used. He didn't say you live as an enemy of Christ. He said, no, you're living as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ is the symbol of Jesus Christ saying, I sacrifice my present for your future. That's the cross. The cross of Jesus, I sacrifice my present for your future. And when we sacrifice our future for the present, we become an enemy of that cross and what it symbolizes. And that's why it's important that we recognize here today, worship team, if you would come. As Ben Franklin said, that failing to prepare, you are actually then preparing to fail. And when we're talking about preparing, we're talking about making sure, number one, have I embraced Jesus Christ as my Savior? Because there is no other road to get to the Father's house. And I know that we all believe this is the hope, the great hope of the church, right? That, that one day, maybe in our lifetime, the, Lord, the, the trumpet is going to sound signaling the return of Jesus Christ. And he's going to gather his children and take us to be with him forever and ever. That's the great hope of the church. Would you say amen to that? Right? And we need to prepare for that day. We want to make sure that we're ready for that day. And I can get into other scriptures that you find in the Gospels, even about there's a, there's a parable of, of people that were not prepared. They ran out of oil, and they were not prepared for the return. The Bible is full of illustrations where it's so critical that you and I are preparing for that day as the people of God. And a simple way to do that is to ask ourselves, every day that God gives us breath, God, how can I live today to prepare for my tomorrow? To prepare for that future when you return. I want to make sure that I take advantage of every opportunity that I have to make a right decision that prepares me for that great